Amen. So as I said, today is, well, it's my favorite of all the church's holidays, uh, Trinity Sunday. And it's the day that we recognize, as it's aptly named, that our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But those words, however, Trinity and celebrate, don't seem to go together, do they? In fact, to be quite honest, we don't know what to do with the Trinity sometimes, much less celebrate it. It's a core doctrine that remains with us, but almost like a possession that we have no use for, yet one that we can't muster ourselves to let go of because we've had it for so long. It hangs on for its sheer sentimental value. Now, that's an over and exaggeration, but it does get us to a very real issue in our relationship to the doctrine of the Trinity. Carl Ranner, writing in the middle of the 20th century, said the following, It is as though this mystery, speaking of the Trinity, has been revealed for its own sake, and that even after it has been made known to us, it remains as a reality locked within itself. We make statements about it, but as a reality, it has nothing to do with us at all. So Ranner captures the general feel toward the doctrine in his day, and I think aptly describes ours too. It is as though this mystery, he says, has been revealed for its own sake. That is to say, it's as if God revealed his triune identity for no other reason than that he wanted us to know. It's mere information for information's sake. Thus, Ranner continues, we make statements about it, but as a reality, it has nothing to do with us at all. So the practical bearing of other theological matters are clear. But the Trinity, we don't know what to do with it. It's kind of just there. We believe it, we confess it, but why, right? So the result is that the doctrine hangs on, but we don't know why. It's relegated to seminaries, uh, to textbooks, and to stubborn pastors who insist on teaching classes about it. Recognizing this, however the reduction of the Trinity to a, uh, a doctrine that's an appendix in our theology, something of a Trinitarian revival broke out in years past. Suddenly, everyone recognized just how practical the Trinity actually was. So whereas before it was something that didn't have anything to do with our lives, then in the 20th century, a giant change happened, and now Theologians found the inner workings of God's triune life to provide a pattern for every facet of life. It was used to argue against the Pope's authority in the Catholic Church. Interesting. It was used to underwrite revolution and reformation in Latin America. And by those closer to home, it was used to reinforce female submission to men. And so it proved to be quite a practical doctrine after all. The feminists, the traditionalists, the liberationists all found support for their cause in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And therein lies the problem. We have experienced something of a Trinitarian renaissance, but the doctrine has been distorted in the recovery. Rather than theological fidelity, holding fast to the doctrine as it was delivered and it was formulated in the ancient councils, theologians adopted new and um, foreign understandings. And why? 
what is the reason for these new Trinitarian understandings? It's, it's important, and I'll get to it in a minute, but it's only that they might find support for their predetermined cause. Because what, after all, is more authoritative and final than God's triune life according with one's particular cause? It's the ultimate trump card, right? If you can prove that God's triune life maps onto your particular issue, then end of discussion. Everyone needs to follow along. So if only I could prove to those feminists that there is submission within God's triune life, then they would stop destroying the family and society. And on the other hand, they'll say, if only I could prove to the patriarchy that there is mutual submission and deference between the persons, then they would stop oppressing women. Do you see the problem? Driving the re recent Trinitarian revival is not truth for its own sake, but a particular predetermined social cause. One comes to the doctrine not to have it speak to them, but to find or even contrive the support that they are looking for. Thus, if the doctrine has to be reformulated, if we have to tweak it and change it so that it accords with our particular cause, then it's no matter. And again, we're not against reformulating the doctrine in principle. We're in favor of anything that brings us to a closer understanding of the truth, whether we like it or not. But unfortunately, that's not the case. The recent Trinitarian developments are not so much about uncovering the truth um, um, as they are about defending one's tribe, as is everything these days. And so it has to be the other way around, really. We must seek the truth courageously for its own sake and then let the chips fall where they will. Now, thankfully, according to our forefathers, whom I prefer much to us moderns, those who originally formulated the doctrine of the Trinity, who mined the scriptures and put the pieces together, they said that the Trinity isn't practical, at least in the sense that we mean it. For them, it wasn't about social projects and liberation movements as much as it was about worship and idolatry, as much as it was about truth and falsehood. Fundamentally, the doctrine of the Trinity is about cherishing God for who he is, worshiping him in spirit and truth, and always a good thing to add to that mix, not being idolaters, idolaters worshiping God for who he is. So the doctrine, it can't be used to underwrite, um, it can't be used to underwrite every cause under the sun because it fundamentally can't. It pertains to worship, and that, of course, is the most practical thing of all. So my concern here is that sometimes our concern with practicality, making it the measuring bar of all things, blinds us to deeper and more beautiful truths about God. It might be compared to one's relationship um, with their spouse. In a moment of vulnerability and trust, you open up and share your inmost secrets and personality with them, and they respond, but is it practical, though? That's nice to know, but what am I supposed to do with that information? Practicality has its place, but... It's more on the job site than in relationship. 
the mutual self-disclosure of husband and wife rather is about knowing and loving one another more. It's not practical in the immediate in the immediate sense that you can take it and extract timeless principles from it, but it's practical in the long run. It shapes your understanding and your appreciation of one another on the deepest level. So asking the question, does it make a difference? Is it practical as it pertains to the doctrine of the Trinity is the wrong question altogether. We are worshipers, not pragmatists. And so what I'm saying is this, and it'll serve as a preface to our intro to what we're going to talk about. We are to treat the doctrine of the Trinity in a relational sense, valuing the revelation and understanding for matters of worship and communion, right? As we just sang, worshiping God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not in a merely practical sense or in a strictly practical sense, as if the doctrine were a how-to manual. It's only value that we would learn a few handy tips from it that we could apply to our lives, right? It's just too small a category to try and put the doctrine of the Trinity in. So what I'd like to do this morning is just to lay out the very basics of Trinitarian theology because it's valuable for its own sake, right? And not merely instrumental value, that we'd worship God for who he is and along the way correct some misunderstandings. So the easiest way to get a handle on the doctrine of the Trinity is the ancient formula, and you've heard it, one being three persons. One being three persons. So let's consider the first part of that formula, one being. Now consistent throughout the scriptures is the unified testimony that God uh, uh, are the testimony that there is one God, rather. And that's nothing new for us, of course. And it's really summed up in the, uh, the entire biblical witness can be summed up in the Apostle Paul's words. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 and 6. There is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There is but one God. So on the one hand, the Apostle Paul confesses that there is no God but one. Yet on the other, he admits the existence of many gods and many lords. So unless he is contradicting himself, it seems that he understands God, uppercase, as one type of being, and gods and lords, lowercase, as something entirely different. As he says, of God, there is only one, but of the gods, there are many. So in another passage, the Apostle Paul takes this logic a step further. This is Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So he's talking about the um, deities of the pantheon that the Galatians used to worship. So he states the matter plainly. These so-called gods that the Galatians used to worship were in truth those which by nature are no gods. So in other words, though the title God might be applied to them, um, applied to these, in fact, very real beings, they don't deserve that title because they do not possess the divine nature. He says, they are those which by nature are no gods. So that's 
very uncontroversial and elementary knowledge, but it's important that we don't overlook that because it constitutes the building blocks for our understanding of the Trinity. So there is only one God, and to that we answer yes and amen. Now that means, however, that there's only one divine nature. William Desmond, the philosopher, put it this way, God is God, and nothing but God is God. God is God, and nothing but God is God. So there are many beings that are called gods, but by nature are no gods. They are creaturely, contingent, dependent upon the universe for their existence rather than the reverse. And as for God, there is only one who properly merits the name, only one who is eternal, transcendent, and the source of all things. He isn't supreme among others that are fundamentally like him. Rather, he stands alone unto himself. Now, this is all a roundabout way of saying that there is only one divine nature. So keep that in mind as we continue. Have you guys heard the illustration that compares the Trinity to a family? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are analogous to a family unit. Say, a father, uh, a mother, and their child. Now, in that situation, they're all humans. That is, they share the same nature. Um, but they're bound together by virtue of their relationships, right? They form a unity. So you have three humans who are bound together by their relationships that they have. So now this, some say, is what the Trinity is like. And it seems reasonable. Cornelius Plantinga, in his article, The Perfect Family, says the following. Speaking of the Trinity, their unity is more like a marriage in which two persons become one flesh or like persons bound together in a single community. So think family, right? They're, they're coming together and they're uniting. But I think if we press that a little bit, it doesn't conform to our observations about there being one divine nature. It seems that according to these illustrations, the Father, Son, and Spirit are separate individuals, gods even, who unite together like humans do in the bonds of marriage or community. And so this form of unity, uh, a family, right, individuals joining together, is entirely too weak when it comes to understanding the Trinity. And in fact, it leads those who propose this view to say some very strange things. Um, let me read more from uh, Platinga. He says, Each of the Father, Son, and Spirit is a vibrant center of acts, knowledge, and loving relation. Each is, in fact, so tightly and reciprocally attached to others that the most proper, ref proper referent to the word God is not the Father or the divine essence, but the three-membered society itself, a society overflowing with a zestful life of light, love, mutuality, and verve. So, in other words, he takes the word God to refer only to the Father, Son, and Spirit as a collective whole. So individually, it would be wrong to refer to them as God. So just as it's wrong to refer to a husband as a family or a club member as the club, so it's wrong, or at least he says not proper, to refer to any one of the divine persons as God because the title belongs to the three um, together as a family or a society. So they're, you get the idea, they're composing um, 
They're, they're joining one another to make God, to make the Trinity. So that's not only strange, but it's wrong. It's what theologians call tritheism. It's the belief that there are three gods. Now, how so? And again, in the analogy, it's clear. Um, the analogy they use, a family or a community or some other social unit, presupposes distinct beings. Three people in a family, father, mother, and their child, are indeed three humans. Each share the same nature, but they constitute three distinct beings, right? You have three distinct entities in a family. So it might be somewhat of a useful illustration, and I'm not going to chide someone for using it, but it is ultimately bad theology. Now, Scott Swain, he explains why. He says, to multiply human persons is of necessity to multiply human beings. Two human persons add up to two human beings, two human minds, two human wills, two human powers, and so forth. All right, and that makes good sense. He says, not so when it comes to God. To affirm that the three persons of the Trinity are one God is not to affirm the existence of three gods. The multiplication of divine persons within the one God does not amount to the multiplication of divine beings, divine minds, divine wills, or divine powers. So he's saying that illustration, uh, the family analogy breaks down and is ultimately not worth the trouble because three human persons, though united in relationship, necessarily means three human beings. So it cannot be that when it comes it cannot be that way when it comes to God. The three divine persons don't add up to three divine beings that that you know unite to one another so closely that they could only be considered one being, right? That that's not the case. There is only one being because there is only one God. So it seems we have to formulate their unity another way. So maybe you've heard the analogy comparing the Trinity to an egg. There's one egg, but three distinct parts or elements that compose the egg. You have the shell. And if anyone's used this for Kids Corner back in the day, I apologize. Um, the, the shell, the white, and the yolk, right? It's pretty clever. And so there's one God, but he's composed of distinct parts, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? Behold and bow down before the eggishness of God. And so what this analogy presupposes is that the one divine nature is parted or divvied up into three separate persons, just as the parts of the egg have their particular characteristics, whiteness, transparency, and yellowness, or hardness and liquidity and semi-solidity. So the three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have their own particular attributes. Now, it seems that's an easy way to reconcile the oneness and the threeness together. We don't have three beings, but one of which the persons constitute the whole. They each bring their own respective parts to make the Trinity. Now, that is to make a fatal mistake. And the question is, well, how so? Well, if the, if the divine nature is parted between the three persons such that each possesses their own distinct attributes over against the others, then what you have is persons who are themselves not entirely divine. Only together do they compose to um, create the fullness of the divine nature. Just as the shell of the egg is not the egg, but the shell, um, it's only part of the egg. And, uh, and, and so it would be with uh, this illustration. 
Their divinity, in other words, if they only, if they had just a part of it, would be a subdivinity. The Father, though he might possess authority and power, maybe he wouldn't possess love and grace. Those would belong to the Son. And the Son, though he might possess grace and love, he would not possess wisdom and truth. Maybe those belong to the Spirit. Each person would have only a, a slice of the divine pie, as it were. And this can be quite dangerous, right? If some attributes are ascribed to only one person of the Trinity and not the others. Now, it's quite easy to see why, because what if some attributes are more glorious than others? What if we say the Father has uh, eternality? He has life in himself. And then let's say we give the Son love and grace, right? Now, aren't we creating tears? Aren't some attributes uh, we can create conflict there. So you see, very quickly, we come upon dangerous territory. Now, the Scripture's testimony is something other than this, and it's that each person possesses the fullness of the one divine nature. It's not replicated in them, one, two, and three, or parted between them, here a part, there a part, and then another part, but it's equally and totally shared by them. The Father does not possess his own power, but shares it equally with the Son and the Spirit. His power is their power, and their power is his. It's the same power that they exercise. And so it is for every other divine attribute. The three persons equally possess the same wisdom, the same glory, the same love, and so forth. So you and I might possess some qualities uh, some similar qualities, or the same qualities. But we possess them in varying degrees and consistency. And moreover, the qualities, uh, and moreover, your qualities are not mine, and mine, unfortunately, are not yours. Or yours, unfortunately, are not mine. <laughs> so it's not so, and it's not so among the divine persons. The Father, Son, and Spirit equally possess the fullness of the divine nature, one wisdom, one power, one glory. I think as one theologian said it, and I think this is a great way to explain it, we are speaking not of three divine eyes, but thrice of the one divine eye. And so the scriptures are utterly unambiguous about this. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Have I been with you? Have I so... Have I been with you so long, so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. I am in the Father and the Father is in me, the Son says. Now, what can this mean other than that they possess the same nature? The Father, so if, if you literally have seen the Son in the person of Jesus Christ, you have seen the Father. Now, unless the Son possesses the very same deity, not replicated, but the very same one, he, uh, the, I am in the Father, the Father is in me, it would be impossible for him to say such a thing. If there was even the smallest difference, even the most minute in the smallest, most insignificant thing, that statement would not be true. So consider also these words from the author of Hebrews. He says, chapter 1, verse 3, He, the Son, 
is the radiance of his, that's the Father's, glory and the exact representation of his nature. Or in other words, the Father has imprinted his exact likeness onto the Son. The Son is not a near likeness to the Father or even a close but not quite replicate, but instead the exact representation. Finally, the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 2, 9 ought to settle the matter. He says, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is the entirety of the divine nature, not in a subdued or diminished form, took up residence in the, in the human body of Jesus Christ. They have the same nature, the same divinity, not parted between them, not replicated between them, but the very same one. Now, in regards to the Holy Spirit, the scriptures plainly attest the same thing. So take Jesus' words in John chapter 16. It says, He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So first, Jesus claims that all things the Father has are mine, which is quite a bold assertion of the Son's equality with the Father. The Father has nothing, is nothing, that the Son does not likewise possess. And the Spirit is added to the mix too. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. So the Spirit, in other words, has access to all things that the Father and the Son share in common. Son says, all that the Father has are mine. What's, what's his is mine, and what's mine is his. And then yet here's the Spirit added to the mix. He will take what's of mine and disclose it to you. Now, if the Spirit can go and plumb even the depths of God, all things, what does that communicate other than the Spirit's co-equality with them? Again, because the Spirit could, properly, could not properly disclose the Father and the Son to us. That's, that's His role, right? He reveals the Son to us and the Father in the Son. He couldn't do that unless He were equal with them. He would always, if He wasn't totally um, uh, equal to them, would necessarily be revealing a diminished form as God's glory is diminished through creation to us. So, what does this mean, practically speaking, right? So, so we've been going on about their equality, right? Not that, not that the divine nature is parted between them, not that it, it, it is replicated so that there's three separate divine natures. So, so, so what's the point of this? What's the upshot? Well, there's quite a bit, more than we have to say, but it does communicate something essential about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is, apart from them being different persons, there is no discernible difference between them. The three are the very same God. So, when we look at the life of Jesus, and we see in the Son, love and grace and mercy demonstrated in His incarnate life, it's nothing other than the Father's and the Spirit's love and grace and mercy. So it's not that the Son can be doing His own thing, acting out His own attributes and there be something different and hidden behind Him. The three persons, remember, equally and totally possess the entirety of the divine nature. Therefore, there can be no distinction or partition between them and their nature. 
So it's impossible that the Father would be one thing, say, wrathful and quick to judge, while the Son would be something other, patient and merciful. Rather, if you've seen me, the Son says, you have seen the Father. So to gaze upon his actions, to hear his words, to know his person is nothing other than to experience the Father in him. So in our interaction with the word, we necessarily interact with the speaker of the word, the father of the son. And so dispelled by this um, proper Trinitarian understanding is the ever-present fear that God is something other than what is revealed in Jesus Christ. There is no other revelation behind him, no other word to be spoken by God. God, the author of Hebrews says, after he spoke long ago to our fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. So you ask the question, who is God? What is he like? What, what, what are his attributes? What is his disposition towards sinful humanity? So on and so forth. Every question you could ask, the answer is found in Jesus Christ. The one who welcomed sinners and tax collectors. The one who rebuked religious hypocrites. The one who died on a cross for his enemies. That is who God is and none other. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So thus, the picture, at least in some respects, is becoming clearer. And it leads us now to the other side of the Trinitarian equation, which is the three persons side of the equation. Now, based on the options we've just ruled out, we can say with confidence that the three persons are not three separate individuals who unite uh, in the God society, nor are they parts who um, compose and make up the one God. Um, the, the three persons must be conceptualized in another way. And so this leaves us with still one more popular analogy to consider. And that's that the Trinity is similar to the molecule H2O. The molecule is one, but it can transition into three different states. It can be a solid, it can be a liquid, and it can be a gas. Now again, the apparent tension between the oneness and the threeness is, is, uh, is resolved. There is one God who manifests himself at various times and in various places, um, and in various ways, sometimes as the Father, other times as the Son, and then now again as the Spirit. And a very similar analogy to this one is one that compares the Trinity to a person exercising three different roles. So you can have one woman, but depending on when you run into her, she can be a mother, she can be um, a, a wife, or she can be an employee at her job, whatever, right? So you have one person, three different roles, or one molecule, three different states. Um, but the tragic theological error this analogy commits us to is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit become merely phases or roles in God's life. In other words, the three persons are not permanent and abiding, truly existing as persons, but they're simply different masks for different tasks. There's one God who sometimes will be Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Spirit. 
But he's never really any of those things. He's some fourth hidden thing behind those ones. So this is the heresy condemned in the second century called modalism. And the one who condemned it was a man named Tertullian. Um, He was a very brilliant and combative theologian. And in fact, he was the one who coined the term person, right? So we refer to God, to the Trinity, one being three persons. Now, person isn't a a word that we find in the Bible um, to refer to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't have a good word for what to say then. So Tertullian came up with the word person, and he did so to defend against this very thing, to make sure that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit don't melt into one another as merely phases or modes, as non-essential accessories to God's life. And so rather, the Scripture's testimony is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not temporary phases like the three states of H2O or separate roles that a person can have, but irremovable and permanent distinctions in God's eternal life. So the Father is, He he is eternally, and He is neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is, and He is neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is, and he's neither the Father nor the Son. So, Herman Bavink, um, a theologian, he, he, he kind of explains a little bit. He says, in the dogma of the Trinity, the word person, right, that's the word we're using here, the word that we've always used, simply means that the three persons in the divine beings are not modes, but have a distinct existence of their own. What does come out of the term person is that the unity of the divine being opens itself up in threefold existence. So when we use the term person, we don't mean that in the sense that one person, two person, three persons, one being, two beings, three beings, right? In our modern sense, even of personality, each having their own distinct will and, and, uh, and uh, attributes and so on and so forth. We simply mean the word person to say the father is and he's not the son and, and, and so on and so forth. So, In other words, the Father is a person in the sense that he's different and distinct from the Son and the Holy Spirit, and so it goes for the Son and the Holy Spirit as well. The three are not merely a mirage, they're not merely a human construction, but real and actual distinctions within God. And persons is the word we use to identify that. So the fact that uh, this fact is apparent, right, even on a cursory reading of scriptures, of the scriptures, because it's impossible um, to read, especially the prayers of Jesus, um, in any other way. Otherwise, we must say that the Son is, he's, he's, he's praying to himself, right? He's praying to uh, a, a, a father that he's imagining at that point. Or when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, and the Father's voice comes down from heaven, and there's the apparition of the Holy Spirit in the dove, right? We'd have to say, th- those it's, it's just the one God who's conjuring all these things at one time, and it, it really is nonsensical. So what we have in the persons are three distinct, well, persons is the word we use because we don't have a better one. Again, so what's the upshot of all this? What is the practical import? And again, it's quite simple and foundational. It's that inherent in God's being, existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is relationality, communion. If the three really are persons, at least in some highly qualified divine way, 
then there is something like communion in the divine nature. And I say something like because God is transcendent, right? He, his rationality, or his relationality rather, is, is, is something like ours. Not a, in a diminished way, but in infinitely more dynamic way. And so this teaches us something simple, yet very uh, fundamental. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, does not create us to have something from us or to gain something from us, but ultimately to share something with us. Our existence is not about service and duty, even obedience, as much as it is about communion and, part and participation. God doesn't need servants, so he doesn't create us as servants first and foremost. God doesn't need companions, so he doesn't create us as companions first and foremost. In fact, he needs nothing. So why would he create us at all, being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The answer has to be to share his life with us. God's all-sufficient and perfect life overflows and issues forth in the creation of the universe. Not that he might demand something from it or benefit from it, but that he might share himself with it. Now, C.S. Lewis, and we'll end here in his screw tape letters, he captures this brilliantly um, with the senior demon screw tape writing to the junior demon Wormwood. And he says the following. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because, he, because their wills freely conform to his. And then here's, here's the point. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. And amen, right? Only this God, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect, self-sufficient life in himself, can create, can redeem, and can be the one who he says he is. Let's pray.